Welcome back to another episode of Are You a Robot? I am your host, Demetrios Brinkman, and today I am joined by none other than Adam Leon Smith. Let's hear a quick intro from him. Hi there, my name's Adam Leon Smith. I'm a systems verification specialist with a, a focus on artificial intelligence. Okay, so in case you don't know what this series is about, we are trying to attack all of the greatest challenges that stem from AI and related technologies. And the way that we're doing that is by gathering the best and brightest minds that we can find out there in the world and having them come on this show and talk with myself about what it is they're doing, how they see the current state of affairs, if there's anything we need to keep in mind, or if there are any best practices that we can gather as we move forward in life with AI and all of these technologies eating up more and more of our daily lives. I will mention that the conversation does not stop here. If you would like to keep talking about anything that you find interesting on this episode or any of the other episodes for that matter, jump into our Slack workspace. We are creating a community around AI ethics, all the data governance, data everything when it comes to looking at all of the new EU regulations, how we're going to be interacting with AI in the future, what robots, ethical questions robots pose, I guess we could say. All of that good stuff we're talking about in Slack and any breaking news that you may or may not hear about we're trying to share it on there. So jump in, introduce yourself, let us know what you're working on, what you're passionate about, and we'll start the conversation. Last but not least, I want to give a huge shout out to our sponsor of this season. It's a little different than the past seasons. This season, we have For Humanity coming in and sponsoring, which is absolutely incredible because I am a fan of the work that For Humanity is doing, I think it's an integral part of what we need when we move forward and we're trying to look at how AI is being used in so many different use cases. For Humanity, in case you do not know, they're an organization that focuses on developing an infrastructure of trust in AI by conducting third-party audits on AI systems. So, if you'd like to hear more about them or jump into our community, the Are You a Robot community, you can find the links for all of that stuff in the description below. I encourage you to check it out. And now, without waiting any longer, let's talk with Adam. Are you a robot? Adam, it is great to have you on here. I'm excited to talk with you, not only because I've been doing a little bit of listening to your own podcast. And so I want to dig into some of the topics that you've presented on there, but also because of the work that you're doing with For Humanity. And this season, they are sponsoring our podcast. And so it's really cool to have you on here. I feel like there's a wealth of information that we can exchange. And I want to just jump right into it. I'd love to hear about how you ended up getting to be where you're at right now. Wow, I guess... So I focused for years on uh, verifying complex systems, mostly in banking, actually. And about four years ago, my company Dragonfly was, was building a product. And one of the things that product does is it allocates work to the best person to do a piece of work in a, in a software engineering context. 
And I started hearing about all these these bias issues in artificial intelligence, reading a bit in the press, a bit in uh, in nonfiction books, and I started to get really interested in it and a little bit worried about how my system was going to, to handle this. So I started reading more and more scientific literature on the topic. And after reading 20 or 30 papers, I obtained a sufficient understanding to realize that it was a problem and I needed to do something about it. But I also recognized that nobody in industry or most people in industry are not going to read 20, 30 papers about this mm. stuff when they're faced with an IT project and a looming business deadline. So I started looking at who was working on trying to come up with practical techniques for practitioners to, to deal with these issues. And the only people I could find were standardization organizations. So IEEE, uh, ISO IEC, organizations like that that are international and have technical expertise coming together to try and turn state-of-the-art practices into standard practices for industry. And then it came to my attention there was a, a role that needed filling, which was editing the ISO and IEC's uh, technical report on this topic. So I jumped into that, not really realizing what I was going to get myself into. Several years later, you know, I think I'm at the final draft, and that will hopefully be published in, in January. But along the way, I developed quite a lot of expertise to build upon my existing machine learning expertise in this particular bias topic. Um, and, and then I got involved in For Humanity about 18 months ago. Um, I was volunteering for uh, MIT's uh, PathCheck project, which is all about contact tracing. And I met Ryan Carrier, who's now the executive director of, of For Humanity. And we started talking about the gulf between people talking about ethics in AI and people on the ground who are dealing with technical problems on a day-to-day -day basis. And For Humanity, I think, is being instrumental in closing that gap and more agile than the standards organizations. Not to, not, I don't want to detract from the standards organizations because I have a, a foot in, in both camps, but they're, they're both very, very different. Mm. So that raises an interesting question in how they're different and what they do or how you see the two roles being applied and do we need both of them? Could they merge or what the different worlds look like? Well, I suppose... Formal standard, standards organizations are primarily uh, comprised of national bodies, so representatives of countries. And countries will send experts who are typically from large companies and some small companies as well, who will contribute towards standardization. And when you get into an area that is so um, contentious as ethics and potentially political in terms of trade, there's a lot of agendas in the room, you know, there's a lot of the big name technology companies in there. Mm -hmm. They have agendas, many of them have good agendas. Um, and it, it's hard to understand what those agendas are, but also you've got the international consensus. So everybody in the world has to come together and agree on these things. And these, these things such as ethics, people have very different views on around the world, you know, different yes. countries, the, U, the US and Europe, China, these countries have different views on how some of these things should be approached. So it's very slow, but it reaches consensus and it reaches high quality technical consensus. For Humanity, by contrast, is equally international, but is made up of grassroots experts who have an agenda of working for the benefit of humanity. So doing very similar work, but without the participation of large corporate interests. The work is very high quality, 
and it's it's democratized as opposed to uh, I guess consensus based, and there's a bit of a difference there. You know, there's a difference between everyone reaching a consensus and people having a democratic vote to reach a common understanding. The other difference is speed. For humanity is moving a lot faster. It's made more progress in 18 months than I think standards development organizations have in, in the same mm. time frame. Yeah. But everybody wants to work together. So I think in For Humanity, we're working on our strategy for how we work with SDO, standards development organizations, because we don't want to compete. We want to take the best of that world and we want to contribute the best of our world to help move the agenda forward for, for humanity. It's interesting how what you mentioned with the corporate incentives changes things. And then also this greater vision of trying to work for the greater good of humanity, what's going to benefit humanity helps people streamline and move quicker. Mm. I like that and how you've, how you see it. So I want to jump into some things that I heard on your podcast that I thought were really cool because it's something that we've talked about a little bit on this podcast when uh, Dan Jeffries came on here and you just said it in a brief kind of off the cuff comment, but I thought, wow, if you, knowing that you do what you do, it is incredible to think about the potential in this and how you see the idea of AI red teams. And so you mentioned it and I think, I, I can't remember exactly which podcast it was because <laughs> I listened to a few of them in the last couple of days, but uh, it was around the fact that businesses right now do not have AI red teams and, or at least very few of them do, especially when it comes to AI, let, let alone just regular red teams, right? And so do you think that will change? Do you feel like that is going to be something that is a necessary part of the AI development process? I think it will. I think, I, I don't know about red teams. So a red team for me is an external independent team that comes in and tries to find all the vulnerabilities in your, your system in a very exciting way, really. I like, I like the concept of a red team. I think at the moment you see big companies like um, uh, the big tech, the, the Googles, the Apples, et cetera, who have these huge in-house teams uh, that try and do that job. And who knows how much focus is given to what they say and what they think. Um, I th and that probably varies by company. I think you also have startups who might take a very, very sensible approach. And I've worked with startups in the UK who work with the regulators. Um, they put a lot of effort and money behind trying to make their systems ethical and unbiased. And you see some really great, great work coming out of there. But again, they're internal teams. So that's not really giving a huge amount of confidence to, to society. I think there will be quite a big shift towards independent third-party audits of these systems. And that might take the form of, of red teams. I think I'd like a t-shirt that says AI red team on. I think um, you, we, we're really pushing for that inside for humanity. And it's something the European Union is starting to push for as well. I mean, you might be familiar with the AI Act. So what we're seeing is the EU proposing legislation, which is starting to mandate third-party um, conformity assessments in high-risk areas. The problem is they're kind of stuck where I was a few years ago in terms of the technical detail of that. We've got 
great words coming out of politicians around data sets must be free from errors, things must be accurate, things must be robust. But these things aren't universally achievable. I can't make an accurate system that is accurate all of the time. Mm -hmm. That's part of that's just part of how uh, AI and machine learning works. So there's there's quite a lot of work that has to happen to turn some of those really bold ideas into things that people can put a tick box against and say, yeah, they've achieved it. Yeah, exactly. That's such an interesting point. And I wanted to get into the EU regulation with you in a bit. Uh, but continuing on this thread of the red teams and cybersecurity and now AI security, we know there's so many different ways that AI can be hacked, right? Or just we can have data poisoning. It just seems like when you introduce data into the software development lifecycle, everything becomes so much more complicated. Mm. And there are so many new backdoors and holes that you can exploit if you know how to and so like when you're looking at that what are some new vectors of attack and testing that ai and autonomous systems introduces beyond the original cybersecurity? well let's take um deep neural networks so i can change the inputs slightly to a deep neural network and fool it and the way that that works is really really complicated and it's based on the internal structure of the neural network so for example, I can trick a facial recognition system to think I am you. And I can do that in a way that is imperceptible to the human eye. I might just alter a few pixels in my, in my photograph and hold that up and I'll be recognized as you. That is a really complex topic to, um, well, it's a really complex vulnerability to um, prove that you don't have. And the methods for proving that you don't have that vulnerability are really in their infancy. And that's something we categorize under robustness, showing um, that an AI system can receive all sorts of possible inputs and still maintain its performance. How do you do that without showing it all possible inputs? Now, that is one risk, and that's quite well understood. But there are new ways of doing this that are found every year ways of doing it in chat, in natural language, ways of doing it in different types of things other than, than pictures. Mm. So that's, that's one really important vector. The other really important vector is, is data poisoning. So a couple of examples of this. If I have a social media chatbot and I tell it to go out there and get likes, and it uses some form of reinforcement learning. So its reward function is to get likes. If it gets likes, it does that more. And it says something one day that's a little bit inappropriate. And let's say some people in some country, I won't name, start naming countries, decide that actually they want it to say that. And they all go and like the, 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 the post. The AI is going to think, oh, success. We'll say more stuff like that. And this happened with a, a bot Microsoft launched years ago where people got it to say all sorts of nasty things about Barack Obama. There's, there's a similar attack that you can use on quite serious systems, though, as well. I mean, one, one popular example is oil trading. So if I'm trading oil using automated systems, which many, many people are, one thing I might be doing is watching the news and watching what happens in the news so that I can predict the price of oil and buy the right trades or sell the right trades at the right time. Now, if I can manipulate the news, and maybe it's not BBC News or you know, something reputable like that, maybe I have set up my own websites particularly for this purpose. If I can manipulate the news, I can then influence the trading, influence the markets, 
who knows what I can lead to in terms of a, a market uh, market uh-huh, event, yeah. right? So these are these are the two um, biggest risks in terms of machine learning and security, and really they're not well understood. There's not a lot of people worrying about these issues. And do you feel like explainability will have any path in this difficult way forward? Because as you were mentioning before, it's like, okay, deep neural networks, we can just tweak a few things and then boom, changes the whole outcome. And then you have these black boxes that we don't really know why it changed the whole outcome, but it did. If we were better to better able to explain that, do you feel like that would help the problem? Or is that just one sliver of the greater problem? In the second example, it would help you with the after-incident investigation. <laughs> By which time... The damage know, the, is done. The horse is bolted the stable, the damage is done, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, and it is really interesting, this whole idea of data poisoning, because I know there's a lot of companies that are trying to combat this and trying to do things so that they help detect when data poisoning is happening. Mm. And maybe actually we should probably take a step back. Can you explain what data poison? Yes. So it is when you interfere essentially with the input data to a system. And that might be the input data that it's processing to make predictions, or it might be the input data that is influencing its learning. But it is basically fiddling around with the input data in order to trick the system. Another example, um, it's not, it's more of a real world example is when you've got one of those cleaning robots is mischievously moving objects in front of it to make it do funny things. That's kind of a physical world example that that you can imagine. Also, a little more harmless than (laughs) these other ones that, that are happening every day. And it is really interesting to me how we are able to put the machine learning into production and then just knowing that this is very possible, the data poisoning is very real, and hoping that we don't get hit or hoping that nothing bad comes of it. And so do you feel like there are ways that we can avoid the, like, or just not be a blatant target for data poisoning? Like, how can we stop that if we do have some kind of machine learning product or if we're on the other end of it and we're just an end user that's using something and then all of a sudden we don't even realize it, but we're interacting with an algorithm that has been manipulated and has now been poisoned. I mean, if the data is publicly available and can be manipulated outside the organization, there's a risk and there's no way you can tell an AI system that, you know, some of the inputs you receive might be fraudulent, watch out for those. The only thing you can do is put monitoring around that data to look for outliers. So to spot things that are abnormal, potentially you can even use machine learning and omni detection for that. But, uh, you know, it might be more subtle than you can detect with that. It might be more subtle. It might be over a long period of time. You might not be able to automatically detect that. So it is, it is more about acknowledging the risk, putting what controls in place you can and putting other business controls in place. So is somebody going to go and look at the social media bot on a regular basis to see what it's up to? Is someone going to be monitoring for um, trading that's, that's abnormal in a business context? These are the kinds of controls that you have to put around it as well as just data controls on the, on the actual models. Hmm. 
So let's jump into this EU regulation. We've talked about it quite a bit on this podcast because it is hot news. It is very topical, especially as I live in the EU. I think you're in the UK, right? No, actually, I'm in Spain. Oh, you're in Spain. Mm. I used to live in Spain. So <laughs> I, uh, I feel for you. <laughs> the good life over there. And so then even more so, being impacted by this EU regulation. And I've heard news that Spain just went out and they did something on their own recently. Uh, can you talk about that? Do you know any, much mm. about that? Yeah, so it, uh, Spain has put in place a rule that uh, workers' councils who rep represent employees have a right to know about AI systems involved in employment. Spain has much better labor laws than, for example, the UK and takes this stuff a bit more bit more seriously. Yeah. I haven't heard much about the implementation of that. Um, and, and it has got some limitations, you know, it only applies when there's a workers council, they only get information about it, they don't have the right to, to block it. Um, so there are limitations, but it is, you know, I'm pleased to live in one of the countries that's taken the very first steps in the EU towards trying to regulate AI. Mm. So, when you look at the EU regulations, you mentioned before that some of this language is a bit misleading because, or it's a bit like we're living in fantasy land. Uh, well, it is and it isn't. And at the end of the day, these are political and, and legal draft statements. So there's, there's a year or so of refinement of some of these words to go. Um, and, and one thing I would say, it isn't just in the EU, because this is extraterritorial. So this will affect anyone that wants to export services to the EU. So the UK is, you know, is part of figuring this out because they're going to have to comply with this if they, if they export services. The US will be very interested because obviously there are lots of websites that use AI, things yeah. like Facebook, right, that are using AI and marketing to, to EU citizens. So I, I think we have to take a... Um, uh, a relatively kind view of the, the current wording and, and let it evolve. But the real work is going to go on in, again, standardization bodies. So if you read the, the law, it talks about harmonized standards. So the detail of what you have to do to comply with the law will be published by SENSENELEC, which is the standardization arm of the European Commission. Now, um, SENSENELEC's just getting started on, on this work. And I've seen a lot of criticism recently coming from some legal minds about the way it's being done, because the EU is approaching this like product safety. So they're taking the same approach that you would take if you were worried about what ingredients were in shampoo, right? So there's a bunch of technical people in a room figuring out exactly which ingredients you're allowed to use to support a law saying you shouldn't use bad ingredients, okay? And some of the criticism is that's not really appropriate when you're dealing with emerging technologies which have a geopolitical and ethical impact. And what you've actually created is technical committees that are unelected, <laughs> that are now effectively going to be writing the detail of the laws. Mm. Uh, I think that is really valid criticism, um, but I also think that it's important to support the work. So I'm, I'm on one of those committees inside Senselec that's really starting to look at this, this detail. My big concern about it is we end up with a law being passed and the work isn't finished in the detail because we haven't got the consensus behind all those experts that work for all these big companies that are represented in the standards development organizations. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. As a, as a small business, 
I'm not going to be able to comply with a law that says I must be robust and accurate. I'm going to need a lot more detail on what that actually means. And so are you actively trying to describe what that actually means? When yes, you're... with lots of others. With lots of others inside Sentinel-Elect who are working on this and uh, some real experts as well, some really good experts. But you know, it is interesting that this product safety conformance approach that's been used for decades in the EU is being applied to such a hot topic. Yeah, and a, such a complex topic. Mm. And so it is a valid, valid argument that it doesn't work like that when you're looking at what's going on with AI and the use of AI. And so you talked about your biggest fear there. When you are thinking about that, is there a hard deadline that the EU regulation is coming to? How does that work? Like, cause you mentioned, okay, what if we mm. don't have everything clear by the time this law gets passed is the law in motion already and there's it's going to be passed or it's going to be shot down at a certain day and so everyone needs to come to that consensus before that day yeah so the view is 2023 2024 ish and when the final text is approved by the european parliament it will contain a date just like gdpr did i think it was like the 18th of may 2018 mm -hmm. and then yeah. on that day it, it took effect and people had like a year or two to prepare for that um and and the reason it's my biggest fear is is not because um it, it's, just a, it's as a business owner, because big companies will be able to afford armies of lawyers and they'll be able to, just like they can with GDPR, they'll be able to play it fast and loose. And they'll be able to rely on the lawyers to argue the definitions and the interpretations because none of that detailed work will, will have been done. Small companies will not. So it will really stifle and limit innovation. On the other side of the coin, it will also not be great for humanity because we won't have that detail. We won't be able to enforce it the same way people struggle to enforce GDPR. And when you say for humanity there, you're not talking about the organization. You're talking about the greater collective, right? That's right. But it was kind of a subtle link. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. So what are some proposed changes that you feel like could help? Well, personally, I would increase the um, the focus on the medium risk use cases. So we've got these really high risk use cases that require third party audit. We've got the low risk cases that just don't. And then we've got all this stuff in the middle where you're supposed to do everything in the conformity assessment yourself and sign your own, um, sign off your own homework, right? Personally, I would take a lot more of that into the third party audit place and put a lot more rigor around it. You know, I, I think the, there's too big a, a middle section of use cases in the regulation. That's interesting that you say that because I remember when Shay Brown, who's also active in For Humanity, she came on here and I was saying, well, you know, if it's just some kind of recommender system on Amazon, I don't think it's that big of a deal. It's not really like one of these high use cases. And he argued that, yeah, actually it is kind of a big deal because it's potentially manipulating the way that you're interacting with the internet or what you're doing. And so that needs to be under check too. And that needs to be, like you said, looked at with more vigor than just like, oh, this is not that big of a deal and let it slide. So let's take Amazon then. So yeah, so if you're, if you're recommending like products on Amazon, it's probably not gonna have a great societal impact if there's this bias and there's recommendations. But if you're the people selling things on Amazon and you're seeing 
uh, a bias in how things are recommended to people, that might have a, an impact on you. But that's probably not, you know, that doesn't undermine fundamental rights of people. But Amazon do differential pricing, right? So you might, you'll get different delivery prices depending on your zip code or postcode, as we call it in the UK. Amazon's been found to be racially discriminating against groups of people because socioeconomic demographic groups you know, gather in certain areas. And by proxy, those zip codes in the US have led to um, people getting higher prices correlated with protected characteristics like ethnicity. Staples had the same problem again in the US um, where they were basically the poorer you were, the more they were charging you. Uh, that kind that kind of thing and those things are not deliberate right i mean these companies are not going out there trying to discriminate in their pricing but differential pricing is always biased by definition and these companies need to protect their reputations by avoiding these kinds of, of impact and this is the kind of process that is hopefully you know really starting to come out of the standards world and for humanity the businesses can start to adopt to protect their own reputations it's not always about people that are trying to do things maliciously in fact it usually isn't it's unintended mm -hmm. side effects which are so easy so easy to introduce yes exactly and a lot of it the time like you talked about it's not the company that's going and saying we should charge more to people in lower income areas or whatever the bias may be that's introduced into this it's just that it it was not caught along the way and there's a huge process in developing this and then actually making sure that it's working and then later you find out after you get the feedback loop and you realize oh we slipped up there so mm. when you're looking at that uh, like you were talking about like with for humanity and also bringing some of these medium use cases into the area where they should be getting third-party audits is that do you feel that is a main solution there? I, I know you talked about robustness and, and how can we verify robustness. Would an audit be able to do that? No. An audit, an audit would tell you whether your team had done it satisfactorily. Your team, in order to do it, the team needs technical guidance, um, which is why there's so much effort being put into developing that technical guidance in both the standards world and, and for humanity. And one, one, you asked me before if, um, about the coexistence between For Humanity and, and standards. Potentially, For Humanity may become a standards organization in the future. There's, you can look at something like the Internet Engineering Task Force, look at some of the standards-based organizations that have formed the basis of the Internet that have been grassroots organizations that over time have become authoritative mm -hmm. because they've been adopted. The other way that For Humanity may be able to help in this space is by applying their brand to labels that tell consumers that products are safe to use much in the same way the eu is planning to do with the ce mark on approved ai systems so it's going to be really interesting to see how all of this develops over the next few years but at the moment the real work is on defining the processes what are the 10 things you do with your data what are the 10 things you do with your team what are the 10 things you do in your risk process what are the 10 things you do when you're you're verifying the system and uh, and, and i think the world's starting to get there i think it really is i think there's been so much work done over the, the past couple of years and uh, i think the timing of the eu ai act will at uh, 23 24 will be perfect for that because you know the work will be established 
people will now have no excuse on knowing how to deal mm -hmm. with these things. I wonder about like that stamp of approval that you're talking about. And if we're not going to see scattered stamps of approval, because I've talked to quite a few people who have come on here and they're advocating for that idea, mm. but it's not like we're all congregating around one way of doing it. And so you may get, oh, this is certified organic, or this is organic plus, and this is, and so it's all, unless you're really deep in the weeds, you don't know what each stamp means. Do you see that happening or am I just being overly cynical here? Yes, adoption will win, you know, it's VHS versus Betamax. Um, <laughs> I, but I think the ones that will be successful are the ones that don't just give a stamp of approval, but give information to the consumer. Some of the most powerful labels that I've seen, and by labels, I mean like when you buy food and it has nutritional information in the standard mm -hmm. form. Some of the most powerful labels I've seen are ones that say, this device or this application, here's how long your data will be retained. Here's the score on that. Here's where your data will be processed. Here's the score on that. You know, assessing things and communicating some of these complex concepts to consumers in a really, really simple way, like Apple is trying to do with privacy labels on apps. Um, and I don't know who should who should run that. Maybe it should be for humanity. Maybe it should be the European Union. But until consumers are able to understand the consequences of certain decisions and the standardization around how those labels are produced, it's very, very difficult to communicate a lot of these technical concepts to the, the wider world. Yeah, so that was exactly my next question is that you and I here, we can geek out about this all the time. But for someone like I was just visiting my aunt and uncle and they're still <laughs> wrapping their head around how the internet works. Mm. How can we give them something yet satisfy our thirst for this deep understanding also? Mm. And I think labels is, is probably the main way, you know, I don't see people who um, don't understand how these systems fundamentally work, being able to understand the concepts that, that we're talking about without them being reduced to quite a simple kind of score. Like, I don't understand how energy in my home works, but I do understand that it's got an E rating or a D rating or a C rating. Yeah. And, and that's that's really where we, we need to get to. Yeah, that's brilliant. That also brings up, I'm gonna, not the sponsor of this season, but our normal sponsor, Ethics Grade, is really trying to do that. I don't know if you know Charles and what he's doing at Ethics Grade, but I do, it's funny yes. you mentioned that. Yeah, <laughs> it's really cool. It's really cool like to see the the idea of trying to have, yeah, the exactly like you said, like in the house, this score and making it very simple. And then if you really want to dive into it, then you can. Like if you want to click through and say, okay, well, why did they get this score? Then you have more details and you have more, mm. in, more in information. So when we're kind of running out of time here, I think I've got maybe one more question for you and then we can, we can get on our way. I know this was a bit of a short one. I love the work that you're doing with your podcast. I'm really happy that you are taking and bridging the gap between the cybersecurity world, the AI world, and also all of these regulations and working on all of these different bodies to make sure that we are advancing for the good of humanity. Now, some of the biggest hurdles that you see moving forward 
in the short term, what would those be? Oh, well, I think one is consensus. You know, re, as, I, as I've talked about, reaching consensus between all the stakeholders on, on how we want to regulate these systems. I think the other is technical. There are systems where we just don't understand, like um, bias in natural language processing systems. So in, in the UK, the UCAS, which is like a clearing center for university applications, um, you submit like a, a, a form, you, you have like a personal history and like a, a several hundred words of a personal statement. Um, their system was rejecting people of certain ethnic backgrounds because of those words. And, it, and nobody really ever seemed to get to the bottom of that. And it is an area that people are researching, people are doing PhDs in it and things like that. But I can't tell you how to go and prevent bias in a system like that. I mean, I've got some ideas, but I don't really understand how it works. Reinforcement learning, um, where you know, systems are learning um, by themselves based on achieving certain objectives. The work on, on some of the issues with those systems is really in its, its infancy. So it's twofold. It's consensus on how we're going to regulate agnostic of the detailed technology, and it's more understanding and, and developing more expertise around some of the areas where we, we just don't understand it yet. So those are the two, those are probably the two biggest areas where I think we need to focus. Along the lines of these areas where we don't understand it yet, do you feel like that is a problem that could be solved by more technology? Oh, no. <laughs> no, it will be solved by more research, ultimately, not more mm. technology. Yeah, because that's something that I always think about, too, is I'm sitting here and it's like you see solutions that are coming out and they're really trying to tout that they're going to solve that problem and help your whatever your system be more robust or more fair and sometimes i think uh, really like this seems like a very complicated problem i'm not sure that we could a automate that and b even know what the real problem is what the root of the problem is yet and maybe later on it could change but at this moment in time i don't know so there is this whole topic of what's called augmented goal specification, which is coming up with um, essentially dynamic regulation for AI systems. So you have an AI regulating the AI, the spotting if it's going outside of its bounds uh, and brings it back back into the fold. And that's you know that's maybe the 2030s solution. But first of all, we have to figure out what those goals are and, and have consensus around those goals in the 2020s and start to enforce them before we can start to get to that kind of solution. I'd love that, but at the moment, I'm very skeptical about it. Yeah, yeah. And it goes back to some thing that we've also talked about quite a bit here on the show is this uh, techno-solutionism mm. and thinking that we need to solve every problem that we have with more tech and throwing more more tech at it and then it'll be fine but we end up digging ourselves deeper and deeper into this hole so i think that's about it i've got one last question for you and then we're going to call it a day this has been incredible adam and for everyone listening i encourage you to check out adam's podcast it is fuzzy quality maybe you'll have to give us a name why the name yeah uh, so i guess quality and i said at the start i'm a systems verification specialist 
Quality is kind of a more, much more complex concept. It's much fuzzier with AI systems, pinning it down. That's how I came up with the name. And I'm really glad you've been listening to it. I love podcasting because you get to meet all sorts of people. I don't know how many listeners I've got on my podcast, but I don't really care. I get to get research. I look, I look for research that's interesting and find people to come on the show and talk about their research, which they love. I love it. Um, I know there's a, a bunch of loyal listeners out there who love it as well. Uh, but as you said before, this is a totally niche, geeky area. But yeah, fuzzyquality.com, check it out. And thank you so much for having me, Demetrius. It's been great. No problem. You. Yeah, this is awesome. So last question is, Adam, are you a robot? I am not a robot. I can prove it. Just press, tick this box. <laughs> there you go. That does seem like the apt question or the apt answer for you the systems verification expert so this has been awesome man thank you so much and i hope to chat with you again thanks demetrius thanks for having me bye-bye